This is Victoria Schneps, and I am delighted to be able to bring our power women, Frances Bonnet, who is the president of Pratt Institute, to you. So as the publisher and president of Schneps Media, and in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn paper and the Brownstoner and the Couriers, and of course, AM New York Metro, we are delighted to broadcast this. And I want to say hello, Francis. Well, hello, Victoria. How are you? <laughs> well, you know, we are pivoting in this crazy pandemic, and I know you are too. But let's go back a little. Uh, you know, I wanted to hear about your roots and who potentially had been your mentors in your lifetime. Would you share that with us? Absolutely. Where did you come from? So I'm from Montreal, and I am the child of a Holocaust survivor. So I have had an extraordinary life with very, very marvelous and very humble parents, basically working class all their lives. I grew up in the streets of Montreal. When I say the streets of Montreal, I really mean the streets of Montreal. My parents obviously thought Montreal was the safest place in the universe and they could let me go at five years old and be part of the whatever culture existed in the streets. So I, my parents were working I always, when you ask me the question about who my mentors were, I can tell you they were not your traditional mentors. I learned from my first and second grade friends whose parents might have been more educated than mine. My father only finished second grade and my mother didn't finish eighth grade. So I had friends whose parents were teachers. I learned how to study from them. I said, I'm gonna to have to figure out what the best strategy is here. So as a very young child, I actually looked for those who were more educated, more informed, had a kind of genius that I didn't have. Now I had parents who believed in education. I had an incredibly nurturing environment. So that was present, but I learned a lot from being outside my own domain. You know, it's hard to believe today that person, you know, a little one, five years old, and you could go on the streets and, and navigate it. But that was the way it was, right? It was the way it was. I was working. By the time I was eight, I had a paper route with a group of friends. By the time I was nine, I was babysitting. In my neighborhood, mothers were 18 years old, nine years old. Nine-year-olds were thought of as perfectly good caregivers for infants. I would say that probably wasn't the best idea, but Let's say though, all those children have grown up and are healthy today. <laughs> so do you have brothers and sisters? I have a younger brother who also is an academic. He's a college professor as well. So it is amazing that, that the two of us emerged out of our household. I think the idea that you could always, the only thing you can carry with you is, is your brain, right? You carry that with you wherever you are. And I think that was present in our family and the culture of the neighborhood as well. Yeah, I, I think that has a big impact. I, I'm a big believer. You certainly start with your DNA, which is unique to you. And then the environment around you kind of helps mold that clay into the person you become, right? Yeah, and I, I continued that way. When I got to high school, my, I, my friends had parents who were very, very active. They were very civically engaged. They were, they were politically engaged. That was not what I heard from my own family. So I inserted myself in those families. So I didn't have mentors in the traditional way, somebody who saw on television or somebody who was a huge force in the world. These were local forces that I could literally be, in, I could be immersed in their environment. And I think for me, community, the relationships have always trumped anything that would be individual. 
I mean, I was, I was very driven in every way, shape and form, but also anxious about my own personal performance in the world. Always fearful that I was not going to be succeed in whatever way, you know, you'd find success. Success could be be president of your student council. Success could be your grades. Well, did you run for that? Were you? Of course, I was always all of those. <laughs> I was all of all of those things. Yeah, that was always when you're young. That's yeah. right. Isn't it interesting? But how did you make your journey to RPI? Because that's really was your first. I mean, what was the journey from Montreal coming to the States? Right. right. Well, I, I, I graduated. I went to McGill. I studied both architecture and engineering. I have multiple degrees in those disciplines. I was teaching at night, working during the day as an architect. Uh, there was a recession in the early 80s. It hit, of course, it was in Montreal. It was also here. And all of a sudden, teaching became a much larger part of my life and larger part of my income. I opened a practice with two, two colleagues. I don't think we made any money in the practice. We did get published, though, in Canadian Architect, which was good enough. As, again, there's your success, right? Uh, a magazine that values you know, excellence, puts you on, in it, on it. But I realized I, I really loved teaching. I had been teaching since I was very young. Again, I was babysitting at nine, but I was also tutoring by the time I was 10 or 11 or 12. <laughs> wow. So that was always part of the rubric. Also, making money was important because I came from very, very modest, modest, modest means. And there was never going to be any support in my family mm -hmm. uh, for either my education or so I was fully scholarshiped. And even though people talk about Canadian education being free, it's not really free. It's still a few thousand dollars. And, uh, but I never paid for anything. Uh, everything was covered for me. And so I, another reason why I value how we think about scholarships, how we support our students in, in, in this current time, but always. So I went to McGill, I studied, I then we had our practice. I worked at night teaching Then I, then I started to teach during the day. And I realized I needed, I needed a graduate degree. So I went to Columbia for graduate school in architecture. And after I graduated, they always imagined I was going back to Canada, but I was offered this job at RPI and it was extraordinary with unbelievable faculty. I probably learned more there as a faculty member than I learned in much of my life because what I had- What part of the school were you in? In architecture. So I taught design and I taught structures because I was both an architect and an engineer. But I had great, I will say I had great mentors there. And although some of them were very tough, they, uh, I learned an amazing amount, the relationship between uh, philosophical, social, environmental constructs and how that could, could affect the work that you do. And uh, one of them was a, again, a gentle giant, a man named Ken Warner, and I taught with him, it's going to sound ridiculous, but I did teach every summer as well for 20 years. And so we taught together for 76 terms. 76 wow, terms. is that a record? <laughs> I spent 20 years there. I learned, again, we would do the same studio. We taught first year. There was something so extraordinary about teaching first year students. You're opening up students who bring with them a wealth of their lives and you open up another world that collides for them. It's, it's an unbelievable experience. So I did that for 20 years. And then I, I became the associate dean. I was the acting dean. I really wanted to move up. I wanted a leadership position. The dean who was there when I made those decisions, and I had gone from being assistant to associate to full faculty. So I made it up the entire ranks. 
And the dean was, was there when I really thought I had to move on. He wasn't leaving, so I wasn't getting his job. And it's very hard to get the deanship in your own in your own house where you grew up. Very mm. difficult. It happens. Part of the politics of universities, right? Yeah, it's it, they know you too well in some ways, and they know you as a young person, and it's hard for them to realize what's happened. When you went, then you went to Oregon, I know, and is it Oregon where you found your husband? No, 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 no. I met I met Jeff in in at RPI. We at a oh. mixer, but we have a, we have a, a very beautiful story that's not for this moment. But <laughs> we yeah, love actually, stories. yeah, and we had our we had two kids in Troy, New York. Uh, we left Troy when they were seven and eleven to Oregon, where I became the dean of architecture and allied arts. I stayed in Oregon for 10 years, nine of which I was the dean. And the final year, I was the acting provost for the institution, which was a remarkable journey because architecture and allied arts was one of the smallest schools of the university. There's 25,000 students. We had 1,500 of those students. So it's an unusual thing. I had, again, an incredibly wonderful group of deans, and we had a kind of leadership team. I was happy to make them meet. And I All right, but you, how, what pulled you to Illinois Tech? How did that happen? Well, the journey continues. Well, once I became acting provost, I realized I wanted to move, understand even more of the breadth of the institution. IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology, was looking for a provost. Very unusual that they would pick an architect, even though I have an engineering background. How about a woman? How about a woman? That too. But the president was a very progressive man. He did not see gender in that way. Just wasn't, that's not who he is. Uh, Alan Cram, also, you know, a very progressive thinker. In any case, it was a great, uh, they never had an architect. Certainly they didn't have a woman, but I I, I have to think that the architect was even the more profound piece here. Um, But it was because they had an incredible school of architecture and an incredible school of design. Well-known, Mies van der Rohe, you know, it's a Mies van der Rohe school. Architecture was at its core, even though most of the students were in engineering and technical. Ne- tech- so were you in Chicago? Is that where the school is? Absolutely. South side of Chicago. All right. In but Chicago. you were then lured, you were then lured, excuse me, to the beautiful streets of Clinton Hill in Brooklyn. How, how was that journey? Well, just Did a headhunter go after you? You know, they did. I I wasn't interested. I had only been at IIT for a very short time. I didn't, I don't think, you know, you you hardly make a dent in a couple of years, but how could you not want to be at Pratt in New York City at this time and as president? It was just too seductive. A dream come true job. It sounds like you were custom made for it with all the experiences and being across the country. And I think Pratt really does have an international student body. Talk to us a little bit about Pratt's mission under you and your leadership there. So Pratt's mission has been really robust and significant from the day that it started 133 years ago. It was about taking the local folks and building people into a professional class And Pratt, from its very get-go, we're talking about late, you know, 19th century, brought in people of all colors, creeds, genders, everything from the beginning. It's such an extraordinary model where it was thinking about, you know, engineering, domestic arts, everybody could be here. Some of the first, I mean, I think it was the first woman dean of engineering was at Pratt in the middle of the uh, the 20th century. 
unbelievable. Um, so what do you think got you the job? Because with all due respect, it had a great leader for, was it about two decades? Over and two decades. Yeah. And then he chose to leave. And I know as a leader, you want to make your mark. Tell us a little bit about what your vision is in these coming years. Well, I think my vision is a collective vision. I'm going to come yes, back of course. to things. What are the those leadership, things? your leadership. My leadership, my leadership is about often listening to the ground, right? What was I thinking about when I came to a place like New York? Well, Tom Schutte, who had been the president for 24 years, had built an extraordinary institution. He had made it from a local institution into a global brand. That's what his legacy was. And, and in fact, he, he did it with somebody who we just lost, you know, Judy Aaron, who was our vice president for enrollment management. Amazing team. Beyond that, of course, all his vice presidents and his deans, his faculty. But it was really about building this community, right? And what I always say the same thing. And I, when people ask me what I wanted to be when I was 17, I said I wanted to be the head of a think tank. Well, what is a president but the head of a think tank, right? So I'm in that yeah, situation. Yeah, what vision? What vision? Right, there you go. I don't know if I knew what a think tank was, but I can tell you what I knew was I knew how to recognize in my colleagues, my friends, my peers, who was smarter than me. Mm -hmm. I knew how to, to bring them together as a collection that something greater would happen if they knew each other. Well, that is exactly what an institution of higher learning is about, is my job is to clear everything out of the way so that people can do what they do best, is you know recognize the genius around you, make space for that, and unbelievable explosions will occur that are both controlled, that are rigorous, that open up, that are uh, ways of seeing the world that are totally prescient. One of the you know, I just I have to interrupt you a little because you know I do ask uh, in my interview with you about what advice you would give, and you know it's tying in with what you just said about how you see your role with what you advice you would give people Absolutely. in terms of leadership. I would say the same over and over. Take every opportunity you can. One of the economist friends of mine said to me, "You must always minimize maximum regret." Oh, wow. Say that again. Say that again. That's Minimize that. maximum regret. Take chance. Take the chance. What will happen? The worst thing that happens, you make a mistake and it's all in the recovery. It's never the mistake. We all have to make mistakes. But every path um, is an amazing journey. And, you know, it doesn't. In fact, we all know you could partner with this person. You could partner with this institution they're all marriages of some sort. It's what you bring to the table together and build together that's relevant. It's not what you bring alone. So as long as there's enough of the chemical elements, you don't need them all. You will create them. That's absolutely you know, what will occur. You have to listen to everyone. You have to be ready, which means that you have to really approach all the work that you do with rigor. You have to take it seriously. You have to do the work well because you will not, you respect people who do that work well and they respect you back when you do that work. Um, well, I think that's a, a, a wonderful guidance. And, you know, um, I, you skewed right into the other word I wanted to have everybody hear that you said was you've got to listen. And so I've been listening to Francis Bonnet, who is the president, the very esteemed, prestigious Pratt Institute 
in our beloved Clinton Hill section of Brooklyn. Thank you so much for your time. This is Victoria Schnepp signing off till next time. A power woman for sure, Frances Brunette. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you.